Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. This is Jill, and before we begin, we wanted to acknowledge the death of Craig Perlow, friend of the show. We met Craig at the Olympian Pin Collectors Convention last fall and featured him on Episode 5 with other pin collectors, and then on Episode 7, he shared his story of being a torchbearer in the Salt Lake City 2002 torch relay. While we can't say we knew Craig well, we so appreciate the time, knowledge, and love of the Olympics that he shared with us that energized us even more. Our condolences to his family and friends. Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Oh! You can do it! You can do it! Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant! But that is an Olympic champion. Ready? Hello and welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, how are you tonight? I am very well. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I am so excited about this episode. Oh, <laughs> Let me tell you. It's- I, I have to, I, I'm really excited too. I cannot believe how. I'm probably a little too excited given that everyone involved in this episode, except for us, is dead. Right. <laughs> That's right. Well, we found out a few weeks ago, we found out that the anniversary of the very first Olympics, Athens 1896, was April 6th through April 15th. So we thought, what better way to celebrate the 122nd anniversary than by having a show dedicated to it this week? So what's the gift for 122nd? (laughs) The gift is a TV miniseries. And what a gift that TV miniseries is. Well, well, it was great because listeners, when Allison and I were talking about, like, what do we what do we do? And she goes, oh, we should just watch the first uh, first Olympics, Athens 1896. And I said, what is this? And what is it, Allison? Before there before there were Lifetime movies, there were network miniseries that were just these bizarre compilations of random actors from all over the place and they would go on for two or three nights in succession Mm -hmm. back in those days and just saccharine and bad acting and worse writing but they're fantastic to watch so this was from the spring of 1984 i assume it was produced to gin up excitement for los angeles before the 84 uh games and it's just a 
compilation of everything that was wrong and fabulous about the 80s. I know. But you know what? I didn't think it was that bad of a movie. Like, I didn't... It's kind of hokey, and it's very, very U.S.-centric. Well, it's not like... Yes. Because, you know... Th- if you watched this movie and thought it was a good representation of what those Olympics were about, well, you never saw that they did cycling and weightlifting and wrestling and fencing and tennis, as well as the track and field and some swimming and shooting. Right. They just really and, didn't cover what the U.S. did not really participate in. Right. And not only that, there were there were a couple of things. So one, that was the cleanest Greek rural village <laughs> i mean everything in it was you know sun washed and spotless right because and and everyone had gleaming white teeth and perfect skin and i'm like i don't think it was probably like that and the other thing was nearly every piece of history in that movie is wrong you think so i think there's a I, glimmer it, of truth in a lot of it a glimmer yes a glimmer of truth, but most of it is very, and stupid things were <laughs> dramatized. Like they didn't have to change it. I just don't think they bothered to look it up. But we started but to talk. They had historians. Angela, they had historians with us. <laughs> they, had, they had historians, but I think they just ignored them. And poor Angela Lansbury. So Angela Lansbury plays the mother of the central olympian in the in the story they built the story around robert garrett who was in fact a princeton athlete who was in fact um on the first u.s olympic team and in the story they do have his mother alice played by angela lansbury who did look beautiful remind you how beautiful yes oh she was how beautiful she is and she was sort of the bizarre love child of glinda the good witch and mary poppins (laughs) With like a a little bit of of Mrs. Potts from Beauty and the Beast because she says things like, winning is something you must do by yourself. (laughs) And and bizarre. And and the Brits in this movie are all like, by George, fine chap, we don't do it this way. (laughs) I mean, it's just awful. And one of the worst pieces of history, in, in my opinion, the Australian in this mm-hmm. competes for Australia, which he couldn't have done because Australia didn't exist in 1896. <laughs> it was just an English colony. It didn't exist as its, as its own entity until 1901. So there no. was no Australian flag. Well, now we have to look at this because I have my favorite book here, the complete book of the Olympics, and I have pulled up the national medal totals list, and they do have Australia as being on this list. But it was still a colony then. Yes. It, It did not exist as its own commonwealth until 1901. So the athlete that they portrayed as coming from Australia did, in fact, come from Australia, but he didn't represent Australia because none of the athletes truly represented their countries. There was no parade of nations. There was no playing of the national anthem. None of that was historically accurate, but it was cool in the movie. Wait, so this whole national anthem thing was a, was a, a weird sideline? No, it's a great sideline because it's central to the movie, but it didn't happen. Huh. 
because that's let's let's talk about this for a second because okay. in, in... you're gonna have to edit so much because we're going off on tangents okay <laughs> well no what you know what let's wait let's hold that hold your national anthem okay. because let's let's talk a little bit more about the plot and then we'll, okay, so we'll get to the we'll get to the details it is it was yes it was called the first olympics athens 1896 it aired in May of 1984 on NBC. It is available for purchase on DVD. You can see it on YouTube. We should probably put the link. We'll put the link on YouTube. Both parts full, fully okay. on, fully on the tube. It was great. So yes, the plot is how the United States put together this ragtag group of young men to go <laughs> yeah. and compete. Wait, no. <laughs> Ragtag was also on my mind, but it's ragtag young privileged men for the most part. Yes, yes, for the most part. Generally, yeah, ragtag young privileged men to go and compete in the first Olympics, the first modern Olympics. Right, right. And so because the U.S. didn't compete in every sport, they really focused on athletics, which most of this group did participate in and then they showed a little bit of swimming because it was really cold since it was in april and they swam outdoors in the bay and they also right. showed a little bit of shooting because the u.s had a, a brother brother team that took the medals but yes. and like cycling and weightlifting and wrestling and fencing and tennis nada so right or gymnastics oh gymnastics which had... is great because you know if you look at pictures the gymnastics was actually held in the stadium. So it was outdoors yes, it was in the middle, outdoors. in the field. So that none of that you would see in this movie. But they did get the stadium right. Yes. With that very long, narrow track. Right. And, and all the outdoor stone seating. And the king of Greece is there. And he mm -hmm. was there. And, and the crown prince awards the medals and that was all true mm -hmm. but the there was no opening ceremony there was no closing ceremony as portrayed in the film they right. did not like, march in as countries but they did have as as i learned from our guests there was some kind of parade the day before yes so that is interesting as well but yes and they had different people competing in the wrong like they had Robert Garrett compete in the marathon in the movie so they could have that conversation between the Greek marathoner who eventually mm -hmm. won to the, you know, became a Greek hero and their central character. But Robert Garrett didn't compete in the marathon. Right. So that was a bit, a bit yeah. far-fetched. Convenient right. for dramatic purposes. Right. So there was stuff like that. Right. So who else is in the movie is uh, David Ogden Steers, who I'm, I believe got nominated for an Emmy for this performance he was great he was great i mean it was really good he he was like the organizer in uh the u.s and he didn't end yes, up go, he, I, well in the movie he doesn't go over to athens with everybody else just the coach right. he does. played uh william milligan sloan who did in fact as they said in the movie become a member of the ioc and basically founded the usoc right so he was very central to olympic history and and then Louis Jordan, you know, all, every time I saw him as as Baron Pierre de Coubertin, I just was like, oh, Gigi. <laughs> and he had no Saint mustache. <laughs> he had no mustache. And Baron de Coubertin was in his 30s. Oh, yeah. In 1896. <laughs> and Louis Jordan was like 65. <laughs> and I was just, you know, he's sitting there going, oh, where are the young girls? I mean, it was just... <laughs> 
really <laughs> bad casting, but so classic of these 80s miniseries where you just throw any star you can possibly get right into the cast in some role. Right. What I would love to know, and I assume this is also dramatic effect, because they did have to, they had to figure out how some of these events actually happened. They didn't know, but one of the characters was, oh, and I looked her up, Albie Parsons, who played like a maid to oh, David Ogden Steers' wife, was it, at their, at their house, with the hurdles thing? No, it was at, it was, yeah, Myrtle was at the girls' school where they were training when they got kicked oh. out of Princeton. Oh, that's right, because... Cherry Hill, right. Yes. And Honor Blackman plays Madame Schulman, who's the head of this girls' school. I don't think any of that existed. <laughs> <laughs> was very loosely based on reality. Right. And so the you could have um love interests from the girls' school. Oh, that's right. That's the... right. Because yes, of course because of course you have to have the love interest element because yes. what are the women gonna tune into? They don't wanna see True. the sports. They just wanna see the love interest. But I did I did find it very funny that the African American Maid had to show, knew how to do the hurdles and could show the boys how to do them. <laughs> yeah, and the way she says it was just oh, I mean, there's there's a lot of sort of subtle racism and sexism and, in this movie, and, and but cringy. this was like, you you got to do it like the horses. They just <laughs> tuck their legs and run. I'm like, oh my god, <laughs> why don't we just put her in an Aunt Jemima kerchief? I mean, it was. But it, it was very charming, you know, in in, in context and, right. and recognizing how ridiculous it was. Right. And, and it also featured a young David Caruso. Yes. And doing a, a pretty good Southie accent, South Boston yes, accent. Yes. He, yes. Boston, historically, in movies, is... A very you know, difficult accent to, to very difficult accent, yes, accent, to accent, and he he did a very good job, and he was very charming as the character, right, is right. But it is always it's so much fun to watch these old movies and be like, oh my gosh, it's David Caruso, <laughs> probably in a, in a very big break for him. Yeah, I, I mean, he really was one of the major leads, and he had a romance, and yeah, he was important in this. I like your hair. <laughs> oh God, David, that's not your proudest line. Right. So, but yes, yeah, speaking of his character being charming, are we going to play that first? Um, I have play the other one first. Of, uh, no, we can we can play him first. That doesn't matter. So, yeah. so yeah, so one Caruso of the things. So plays right. So David Crusoe is Connolly. He was very charming, and while. I was watching, I got interested in what happened to the athletes after these games. So I started doing some research and discovered that Connolly, who was the first medalist of the modern games, because his his final was right away the first day. It wasn't the first yeah, event the because jump. they had uh, heats of the 100 meters before that, but the triple jump right. had the finals right away. And he ended up winning. So he was the very first medalist of the modern Olympic Games. And he turned out to become a very popular and prolific writer. And he mainly wrote about the sea. And he also covered uh, later Olympics as a journalist. And then I discovered that his medal was housed in the Special Collections Library at uh, Miller Library in Colby College in Waterville, Maine, which 
isn't that far from me, so I hopped in the car and drove up there to pay a visit. And Pat Burdick, the assistant director for special collections at the library, was kind enough to walk me through the Olympic parts of their extensive Connolly collection. Take a listen. How did you acquire this collection? Okay, so um, we have a very extensive James Brennan Connolly collection. And the reason that it's here is because our, a major benefactor of ours, um, James Augustine Haley of Portland, Maine, came the, to the dedication of our what was called the treasure room, which is our main reading room in the late 40s. And he had already started to think about housing his very extensive personal book collection. And he was very impressed with the, with the reading room. He was, um, he was familiar with some of the people at the college and in the library. And so he thought Colby would be the best place for his books. Um, one of the very first things that Healy gave to us was his collection of James Brennan Connolly books, which are in a Connolly al- oh, okay. annex over there. Mm-hmm. And they were friends. Okay. And Healy was very, very concerned about... Connolly's literary legacy not being lost. And so by giving the by having that first gift be the Connolly first editions, he really wanted the college to help maintain um, Connolly's legacy and kind of promote his materials. Um, and Connolly, he was a very interesting person. He ended up being a very popular writer of sea stories, and he was an advent, a really ardent uh, sailor. So he was able to infuse a lot of authentic details into his stories. Mm-hmm. Those li- largely are, is the genre in which he um, spent his fiction time. Which is interesting, because I don't know if you've seen the movie, but he got really seasick on the journey over, supposedly. That's what they told us, and then said, ironically, he ended up writing about the sea. Yes, yes. That seasickness doesn't come out in his own telling. (laughs) (laughs) He he tells a lot of great stories about the Olympics. But um, So uh, he was also a journalist, and after his first Olympic experience, he went back and he did compete... Um, again in another Olympics, and then he started to cover it um, as a a journalist. So Connolly um, became increasingly aware of and concerned about what he saw as the capitalization of amateur sports. Mm -hmm. And so even back in the teens and 20s, he was writing in, I think, a very courageous way about how sports, the purity of sports competition should be preserved. Okay. Um, and I think it's, it was, you know, he was quite visionary in that way. And then eventually working into short stories and longer fiction that he's more well known for. So that's how the Connolly materials came to us, it was through Healy. And then Healy was friends with Connolly's sole daughter, Brenda Connolly, and urged her to give her father's materials to us. So we, we got more materials through that door as well. Okay. When I first started here, in the early 2000s, I really wanted to try to connect with family members in South Boston because um, we were approaching the return of the Olympics to Athens. Mm -hmm. And so um, the medal and all of these materials were getting kind of a lot of interest. And so I wanted to know what the family members thought about that. And through um, public records, I found um, the O'Donnell family, who are uh, related to Conley on the mother's side, his mother's side. Um, the O'Donnells were from the Aran Islands originally. Okay. And they're still in South Boston. And so 
Um, I got to know them. They actually got, all got in a van and came up here at one point, and we spent the day in the, our reading room looking through all the materials. They were very excited. But one of the things on the table is that um, statue there, and Connolly was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2012, and the O'Donnells went to Chicago, got the oh. award, and then brought it straight up here. And oh, so wow. it's part okay. of our collection. Um, so we could start with the medal. Um, as you know, it was uh, the top medal was silver at yes. the time yes. um, because people thought gold would be too brash, you know. Um, <laughs> and then um, uh, the second medal was bronze, mm -hmm. and the third place would get a laurel wreath. So this is um, Zeus and Nike on this side, and there's the Parthenon, uh, and they all the medals were the same. They mm -hmm. weren't, you know, personalized at that right. point. Okay. Um, and they ended up using this um, design for the next couple Olympics as okay. well. When Connolly was getting ready, he had some studio portraits done. But just a, a, a couple, and, and we love these these studio backgrounds. You know, oh right, do. it's yeah, it's kind of a, a forest background, but mm -hmm. it's it's an obvious like he's in a portrait studio. Yes, yeah. <laughs> And kind of taking that very kind of manly style. Right, and he's in, in an athletic suit. It's all white, yeah. but it's that same, like from the movie, that, that funky muscle shirt type tank top and white shorts yeah. and, and no socks. Yeah. And um, so this is, I think, something that happened while oh. they were over in okay. the Olympics, um, generating some portraits there. That's a portrait with um, the Parthenon in the background. Mm -hmm. oh, Connolly was at Harvard. Mm -hmm. He was 24 years old. And he was on the track team. As an, he actually was a very accomplished track athlete um, before he came to Harvard. So he was on the track team. And he heard about this kind of revitalization of the Olympic Games. And I don't know how he heard about that, but his track coach knew nothing about that. Okay. So being kind of a brash young man, he went straight to the administration. And he said, I would like a leave of absence for this period of time, like for two months, because I want to go you know, to the, to the Olympics. And at that time, you would just present yourself there. Okay. And the Harvard administration um, turned him down. They said he was going on a junket, and it was unacceptable. Um, so he dropped out. He got very angry, and he just dropped out. So this is the way he tells the story, is that he knew of, um, he was uh, um, representing the Suffolk Athletic Association, which was kind of a lower socioeconomic class um, club than the Boston Athletic Association, okay. where four of these men came from. And um, by the time they got on a ship to travel across the Atlantic, they had been joined by a contingent from Princeton. Mm -hmm. So this was the sole American team. And it's really kind of interesting to see, you know, in this group shot how he's kind of off to the side. And we're never quite sure what that was about, except all of these. Are, people are coming from a much more elite mm -hmm. community than Connolly, who grew up in South Boston. Interesting. Um, so, but it, visually, it's kind of it looks like the two things are two groups are separated. However, in this document here, which is a souvenir of the Olympic Games, Connolly writes a letter to the author who he knows. And he's he's quite complimentary about all of them. So okay. I think I think they built kind of a team spirit as mm -hmm. they travel together. So they're on this ship. It's a steamship, and it's rolling back and forth. And there's not really a lot of room to train. Plus, Connolly had hurt his back just before he got on the ship, 
And so he talks a lot about this um, liniment that he was putting on his back. And by the time he got over to, I can't remember where they first boarded, um, when they when they arrived on, on their first stop on land, um, he said that the liniment had completely uh, repaired his back, and so he, okay. he was ready to go. And so I think some of the Princeton guys were doing like upper chest um, strengthening exercises, and they were jumping in place and trying to do everything that they could, but they just didn't have any room to train. Um, but they weren't put out by it because they thought they were arriving with at least a week to prepare. Right. And um, lo and behold, they arrive in Athens very late at night. They get up in the morning, and there's a parade. And they ask about what the parade is, and it's the Olympic Games are starting because there was a difference in calendar systems mm -hmm. at the time. And, um, you know, as a self-assured young man, um, Connolly found out that one of his events was one of the first to compete. And um, he rose to the occasion. Um, so they all rushed over to the, um, to the stadium. And as he tells it, he let all the, it was in the hop, step, and jump event. Mm -hmm. However, in, in Europe, they were using the hop, hop, and jump, which he had not done. But he watched the other competitors do that, that style and then decided at the last minute, because he had this way of like holding his hands and really kind of concentrating, and he realized he was going to try that. And he let all the other competitors go first, then he threw his cap past the best Oh, jump. so that was true. Huh. Well, that, that has not been cooperated. Okay. <laughs> but again, he's a wonderful storyteller, mm -hmm. and, and one could visualize that he would do that. You okay. know? And then he jumps past his cap. And, and the one thing that is very consistent about all the different reportages of that game is how gracious the Greek people were, especially when the Americans arrived. They really faded them. They, they gave them picnics and lunches. When you were a double medalist, you got a silver bowl from the crown prince. Oh, wow, OK. Um, so that's Connolly's bowl. So they really felt um, embraced. And the other thing that stayed with Connolly was the absolute sense of camaraderie and uh, the purity of sports You know, in that experience. So I think he really never recovered from that incredible experience and I think it, it kind of formed his path you know okay. going forward. So this is a, a Collier's article in which he does lay out some of the parts of the story. It doesn't have the, the hat in it but it has a whole lot of the other things including him to having to run and jump oh, onto a train. Um, oh okay because so, yeah. I wondered about that story too. Yeah <laughs> that one has was also um, picked up in another article by Harvard so um, so there's there's some um, corroboration, um, mm -hmm. and then there's fanciful details. Okay, you know, because you he was a novelist. Yes, Okay. and, and, um, and so actually I can show you, Jill, that just to give you a sense of his personality, this is really a wonderful portrait. I think this was done in the teens. I think he ran on the progressive ticket, on T oh, right. Teddy okay. Roosevelt's mm -hmm. progressive ticket in Boston. But um, he's very self-assured and, you know, very poised, mm -hmm. and I I, I think he could pull that off, you know, like right. Just he's very confident looking, very dashing, mm -hmm. and and slightly he's played by David Caruso in the movie. Oh, he does look, yeah, oh, okay. <laughs> looks like he does yeah. look did, does look a little like David Caruso to me. Uh, yeah, so but I think he was also really interested in what was going on around him, not only in the sports arena, but um, his his own area around mm -hmm. Boston. You know, he wanted to be a public servant, and he really 
was so interested in what was going on in Ireland because of their family ties. And he actually went over to Ireland after the Easter Rising and helped with the White uh, Cross. Okay. So he had a greater awareness of himself, you know, and his his agency to do good, you know. So I, I actually, I really respect the person that he was. Then he got um, a certificate, and this is in Greek, um, and we loosely had it translated to the, the Panhellenic Sports Society wishing particularly to adorn its catalog of members with your name. So it's kind of an induction into an honorary society of some kind. Oh, interesting. Um, so that came in 1896 in April, okay. right after the, right. probably right. before he left. Okay. And it's really cool because it says, it starts off, Olympic victor. Yeah. Very lofty. Yes. Stylized yes. Yeah. words. Okay. And then he also got this souvenir booklet, which we had to disbind for oh, preservation okay. reasons, um, but there's these different plates. This is apparently quite rare, maybe because it was on acidic paper, and so maybe copies were, a lot of copies were made, but not many survive. Okay. So um, this would be another of the things that he brought back as a souvenir. Wow, and it's a bunch of really beautiful plates of the vari various monuments throughout and and it's, Athens. It's possible though that these are hand colored. Oh wow. It's a little hard to, to to see, but they look like lithographs. They might be. Well, they could be colored lithographs at that point. And this is all just pictures of places like mm -hmm. and and it's also kind of interesting to see what it was like back then because the Parthenon, I haven't been to the Parthenon in, in a long, long time now. Me, me too. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it looks a lot more together than what I remember. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like the, the, the ruins are still ruins, but they aren't as ruined as they become. Right. Through the wartime. Yes. Right. War mm -hmm. and yeah. pollution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There is yeah. a nice book over here. It came in through the Connolly Library, but let me see if I can find it too. But it has a nice picture of the stadium. Oh, okay. I think it's a contemporary photograph. This is the right one. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, honey. And there's the gymnastics bits, because in the movie, gymnastics is totally ignored because we didn't really have anybody competing. Right. It was all so, um, the Europeans right. were the gymnastics. Or, you know, so, and I had read about the, the narrow track and how hard it was to run anything that went around that track just because it was so narrow. And so it's really interesting that there is all these really practical obstacles for the athletes, you know, especially coming from across an ocean who had never been to Greece, mm -hmm. you know, about even the climate, you know, and acclimating themselves physically. On the ship, they didn't have room to practice, even though they were in top shape when they got on the ship. And then there was the time change, the date change, and not speaking mm -hmm. the language. You know, so I could see, you know, in addition to being so excited about going, there could be a lot of trepidation, mm -hmm. you know, and kind of wondering about how you were going to no negotiate through all these obstacles, you know, to get even into right. the stadium. Right. Although I would think that security would have been different back, back then. <laughs> yeah, it sounded like it was pretty open and they just welcomed all these athletes in and gave them these long Turkish towels and, you know, they had refreshments for them to keep their strength up. 
And so it just seemed like this celebratory and supportive environment mm -hmm. when all these pe new people came into Athens. You know? Which is really nice because that's what you hear over and over again when we talk to Olympians, just that atmosphere that you don't get with any other event. Yes. And that's, it's nice to know that that happened from day one. Mm -hmm. And um, just like how, how special it is, I think. That's, yep. that's why we like the games. Mm -hmm. That's one reason. And, and even to the point where, you know, this small group of guys mm -hmm. wouldn't naturally have hung out together because of right. socioeconomic class, but, mm -hmm. but they were all supportive of each other, you mm -hmm. know, in the moment. So it kind of broke down those barriers as well. And so just to close the story with, with Harvard, Around the time of this, I find it really interesting, this is in 1936. At the end of the 30s, a group of alumni at Harvard start writing the administration saying, you have got to make this right. You shouldn't have you know, kicked him out or forced him to drop out. And here he is, this really accomplished athlete, and you, know, you need to apologize. And it took a while. I think mm -hmm. it was into the 50s before they could lobby successfully, but Harvard did reach out to Connolly. Connolly had been very, very mad at, at Harvard. He, he didn't go back on that campus for decades, and it was only as a guest speaker at one point that he did. But I think it was in the 50s, there was a nice rapprochement, and the university gave him a letter sweater, which we have. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow, okay. We, we have a letter sweater. So there was kind of a closure at that point in his life. I think he died in 57, um, so that would have been later in his life after his athletic career was closed down. So, yeah, I think he's a well-known um, writer because he he wrote a lot um, nonfiction and fiction um, materials for the major um, magazines like Harper's and Collier's, and so he was really out in the public eye a lot. And I think he was well respected, and like. He had a feisty kind of nature because we have some scrapbooks where he's he he would collect clippings about his books, mm -hmm. and when he didn't agree with a review, he would write angry th things in the margins <laughs> like, "That I did not say that," <laughs> in all caps, you know. So you could you could tell like he had like a a bravado oh, to him. But on, I mean, James, you never read the reviews. <laughs> So, um, so I just think he's just a really interesting, multifaceted person, and the fact that he, he and, and Healy really connected around the Irish heritage issue, because that's the reason Healy has all this stuff, which is really based on the the collection is based in the the lit, Irish literary renaissance at the turn of the last century. That was his collecting focus. So he was very proud of his own Irish heritage, mm -hmm. and I think they kind of came together around that and then develop this very long-term friendship. So when other researchers come in here to look at this stuff, like what do, what do they look for? Or, you know, what do they end up finding that mm -hmm. they didn't know? The, the Olympics and, and correspondents around the Olympics will get, um, we do have some folders of people asking for his autograph because of his winning the first medal, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Um, he did have a pretty interesting a correspondence circle, mm -hmm. and so people come at him from the people he wrote to, so that's one avenue. He's really close with Teddy Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. I had a great relationship. They went sailing together. Uh, you know, Teddy wanted Kermit, his son, to be just like James Brennan Connolly. So the, the TR angle is of interest. 
Um, he was in the Spanish-American War. Here's a tintype of him. Oh, wow. Oh, man. And we have a couple letters that he wrote back to his mother when he was um, in the war. So there's some really great um, comments about that conflict, about what okay. it was like to fight in that Oh, conflict. interesting. Yeah. So I, I think because he's so multifaceted, it's, it's, it is interesting, though, that not a lot of people, very few people come for his work itself. Oh, interesting. Yeah. We do have quite a few folders of drafts of short stories that were never published. Mm -hmm. And one person in Ireland, um, in the Aran Islands, was interested in knowing about those because that was something that is kind of hasn't come to light, you know, mm -hmm. so we've digitized those for him. But I think most of it is, is kind of the stuff he did with his life, you okay. know, rather than the kind of the work that he did. You know? That's really interesting. So interesting. Is there anything that, that you know of in the collection that, like, nobody's asked about or, like, a really interesting find or tidbit? We haven't really mined the correspondence section of, mm -hmm. of the um, collection very much, and I have not read all the way through it either. Um, we did pull out kind of the more transactional things, like can you autograph this book and send mm -hmm. it back to me, that kind of thing, or can you come give a speech? But there's some some folders of correspondence with particular people where I think there's a lot more sharing of thought, you know, and observation that possibly is captured there that we haven't paid attention to yet. Wow. Well, this is so fascinating. Thank you. You're welcome. So the big three artifacts here are, of course, the medal. And then there is the bowl he got from the prince of Greece because he was a uh, double medalist. And then uh, the U.S. Olympic Hall of Fame little statue for being the first modern uh, day champion. That's really cool, too. It's a little crystal thing. So, so great. I'm wondering if you've seen the statue that was... Um created for Connolly in uh, Columbia Park. In no, I haven't. I read about that, so I need to go down to South It's Boston really and awesome, and it's a, it's a very dynamic composition where he's, it would have been the long jump, and he's like, has his feet out in front, he's like this. Okay. So it's kind of like a flying through the air. Oh, cool. Of, okay. So it's, it's really, I think it captures the athleticism mm -hmm. that he had, and also that kind of personal drive, um, and I don't, honestly, I don't remember when it was dedicated. I don't know how long it's been there. Um, we found some yeah. pictures of it. Okay. So. I know, I, I, now that you mentioned it, I had read about that, like, I should go, I have to go and check that out. Yeah. Definitely. I kind of wonder if when he got this, he thought, how am I going to get this home? Because yeah. <laughs> it is kind of, I mean, it's a small cup, but it's kind of big. It for is, for a knapsack. <laughs> and actually, it does look a little dinged up, so. <laughs> it looks a little lopsided. Like, yeah, oh, boy, like, thanks. <laughs> thanks, Prince. Uh, i got to get this thing home. Great. It's, it's like you couldn't UPS it. <laughs> so, yeah, it was just unbelievable to see the first medal. And she had everything laid out so nicely on a table and... There was the medal, and I got to hold it because I was like, oh, I didn't want to touch anything because, of course, you know, we have a library background, so I'm afraid to touch everything because I don't have my gloves on. 
you know. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you, did you, did you have to don the gloves no, for but, the mat? No, but I was, I, I, it, it was explained to me ahead of time that I probably would have to wash my hands or something, but that didn't happen. Okay. And I was very, all the pages and pictures were in, uh, uh, they were covered up pretty much. They okay. were in their own little sheets of protective now, gear. Now, did you hold the box or did you actually hold the metal? Actually held the metal. Because oh I was God. looking at it and like, you know, I was talking about how there was no chain and how it evolved and, and she picked it up and she's like, yeah, and it's, it, she said that, you know, it's quite weighty and, or one of us did. And uh, I'm like, oh, is it, you know, and she's like, it's pretty heavy. And I'm like, oh, is it? She's like, oh, you want to hold it? Yes, I want to hold it. What do you think? So I held it really oh. quick. I didn't flip. I didn't take my picture with it in my hand or anything. I didn't geek out that much because I thought that would be kind of gauche. And, you know. <laughs> Which is why you didn't bring me with you. <laughs> because seriously, that would have been like, can I wear it? Can you just pin it to my shirt for a minute, please? No, would have ripped your yeah, shirt open because it was, was kind of heavy. It was small, though. It fit in the palm of my hand. So as a, okay. uh, you know, compared to the medals today that are just They're like bigger large. and bigger, but this was a pretty small medal. And, and as she said, the, the design held true for a couple of games. So that was yeah. really interesting. That was so, it was such a cool visit. It was a beautiful little library, beautiful special collections area. Thank you, Pat, for Yeah, it's me like around. another little, another little uh, hotspot. I know. For Olympic history fans is, that we had is. no clue. I know. We didn't. But, you know, she said they get some researchers up usually. And, uh, yeah, it was very well, cool. If you want to take a look at the first medal, you can you head up to Maine. Go. That's right. So I will say one, one, one plot line that I enjoyed was the marathon plot line. Beyond the fact, not the actual race, because the race was really kind of melodramatic, especially with all the, the boozing it up. And I wouldn't be surprised if they had a lot of it because, because along the way they were fed and watered by the local villages, but they would often... Were they horses? So they were fed and watered? <laughs> well, you know, but they didn't have water stations with Gatorade, right. right? Yeah, so supposedly, according to the movie, the French guy kept drinking wine the whole time. And, and I will have you know that that French runner did not wear the white gloves like the other French runner did who in the sprint had to wear the white gloves because he was running in front of the king. Yeah, no, that was also not historically accurate. I think they just honestly, they just made stuff up. And what made what annoyed me when I started doing the, the research was they didn't have to. Yeah, there were so many other yes. that they didn't include. Right. Did they owe a white glove yeah. maker some favor or something? <laughs> It's like they wanted to make the Brits look pompous. They wanted to make the French look, you know, weird, arrogant. <laughs> yes. They wanted to make the Greeks look hostile. It was like, what is going on? Yeah, because which is odd because apparently the Greeks were so hospitable and had everyone was having a good time and a lot of fun, especially in with the marathon when Don Luis came into the stadium everybody was so excited because a greek person was finally going to win something and it was super exciting and i gotta tell you what i also did over the weekend is plowed through a little travelogue called the olympian games in athens 1896 by burton holmes and burton holmes was a an old-time lecturer and explorer so i guess back in the day there would be people who goes who went on trips and then they put together slideshows 
and like give lectures to audiences and stuff who couldn't travel. So that's how, yeah, it was really cool. So he's got this this short little book and uh, it's got a lot of pictures and he talks about going to Athens and then talks about his experiences as a spectator at the games. So I will have you know, according to Burton Holmes, you would love the Greek king because it says here, then while from the sloping sides of the stadium, avalanches of applause came crashing down, while the king of Greece so far forgets his royal dignity as to rip the visor from his royal cap and waving it like mad. That's awesome. <laughs> so I'm like, Allison would love this guy. He's a royal for her. You know I love a good Royal Olympic fan. <laughs> but the other thing they spent far too much time on were medal ceremonies and playing of national anthems. Which was completely historically inaccurate. On so many levels. So first of all, there were no anthems played at all. The only anthem that was played in that entire games was the Greek anthem. See, that kills me because I went down a rabbit hole because I was so angry at this two-minute scene. And then just uh, like they could not stop playing the national anthem and then making a big deal out of it because the Greeks were rolling. The, the Greek conductor was rolling his eyes all the time every time he had to play it over and over and over. And I'm sorry that we won a lot of medals. Anyhow. Right. There was a scene saying that, what are we going to play for the U.S. National Anthem? Because, you know, we there wasn't one. I said, that has to be a bunch of bull. And I stopped right there. <laughs> so I had to go look up what was the deal with our National Anthem. And that's when I found out that we didn't have a National Anthem back in 1896. That actual fact was ter- correct. We didn't get a National Anthem until 1931. So I wanted to know. Huh. I wanted to find out more. So I talked with Mark Clegg, an associate professor of musicology at the University of Michigan and an expert on the U.S. National Anthem, to get the scoop. Take a listen. Does that ring true at all for that time of history and our National Anthem? No. (laughs) All right. I I thought that was bogus. Yeah, it's, I mean... Columbia Gem of the Ocean, which is the other song they play, or the pianist plays, is certainly was a patriotic tune, and it was in a group of, you know, probably top ten patriotic songs. So it's sometimes mentioned as a national anthem, but it's it's really Hail Columbia, which would be, have been the other song that would have been a leading 19th century contender to be the national anthem. Um, but by the 1996 is is sort of a right on the edge of a pivot point because I think the the Star Spangled Banner is the leading American patriotic tune really from the Civil War forward because it is sort of the sonic equivalent of the flag. And since the Civil War, you know, the question of union and, and the flag and Lincoln's decision to leave all the stars on the federal flag to, you know, deny the, the even the right of the Confederate states to succeed um, or secede meant that the flag really became the, the symbol of union and what people were fighting for and, you know, what the the blood of brothers was spilt for. And so the the flag becomes sacred and the keys song becomes sacred right along with it. So really, I think from the Civil War on, Star Spangled Banner is in the strong lead as a, as a national anthem. You're right that it, you know, it's not the official anthem until 1931 when uh, President Hoover actually signs a bill. But, you know, the the U.S. government, as it often is, is just catching up with what people have believed to be true for a while. And I think that, you know, certainly by World War I, um, the Star Spangled Banner is the official anthem of the U.S. military. And so, you know, a guy wearing a Navy outfit, as you see here, would uh, would certainly be 
you know, thinking of the Star Spangled Banner as the anthem at that time. And that that happened sort of gradually. So by certainly the, you know, the Spanish-American War in 1898, which is just two years after the, the Olympics you're talking about, the Star Spangled Banner is firmly in place. And so two years earlier, it would have been pretty close. Okay, interesting. You know, so they say things in the film like, well, it doesn't, this one doesn't have any words. Um, and that's completely untrue because Francis Scott Key wrote the lyric in 1814. So that's, that's been around for you know, 80 years by the, the time of the first Olympics. Right. And did, was, were the lyrics and the, the melody paired a lot sooner than that or no? How did, how did the two get together? That's a great question because there's a lot of confusion about that. Um, so it's often thought that Key wrote a poem and then someone else later connected it to that tune. But in fact, Key wrote the words specifically to fit that tune. The tune existed first? The tune existed first, yep. It's a it's an anthem from a London amateur musicians club from the 1770s. Sometimes called a drinking club, but it's really a music club. Okay. Um, at which there was certainly drinking, but it's an amateur musicians group. So it's their theme song sort of becomes a melody that's well known. So it's like today if we wrote new lyrics to happy birthday or take me out to the ball game or, you know, any tune that like most Americans would know. And this was a form of political commentary in the 18th and early 19th centuries where you would take a, a well-known melody and you'd write topical lyrics talking about some battle or some political candidate or some issue of the day. And you would publish in a newspaper and then it would get circulated in that way and people could sing the song. And I think the, the reason they did that was, you know, to communicate not only the issues and the words, but the passion behind it. So by putting words to, to melody, you gain some of the emotional um, expression that you get from music. So that was what Francis Kaki was doing. He saw this incredible sort of miracle of an American victory in Baltimore Harbor in 1814 during the War of 1812. You know, the British had just burned Washington, D.C. Yeah, to the ground, and then they would go off to Baltimore to defeat Baltimore, and Baltimore sort of miraculously wins. And so he, to celebrate that, writes this lyric to a well-known tune that had been used for Fourth of July songs and, you know, songs for various, like, American heroes, military heroes, like Charles Stewart or Stephen Decatur, sort of our first mm -hmm. naval heroes, had had songs written for them, you know, decades earlier um, to the same tune. And so he picked a tune that was sort of associated with American pride and patriotism. Interesting. Would, would it have been, was it normal that a country didn't have a national anthem for so long, or... What were anthems a kind of a newer thing? That's a great question. So, I mean, anthems have definitely been around. The sort of earliest ones are often thought to be, you know, God Save the King and, and Britain and um, the Marseillaise in France. Mm -hmm. But um, this, if you think about it, we don't really, the, the way anthems function today in an era of mass communication and transportation, where you have different groups of people getting together who are not from the same place, um, requires certain symbols to tell you which group you belong to and the, to navigate those boundaries. So, be, you know, in the 19th century, the only way you could really get from one country to another was to get on a boat and travel for weeks, you know, sometimes months early, early in our history, colonial history. And so there wasn't really a need to have a sonic way of talking about who we are. Like this group has this flag and this group has this song. So it's really with sort of the modern age and, you know, airplanes and mass communication, television, radio, those kinds of things that make it more urgent to have a national anthem. So people had patriotic songs, and had, but they were sort of local. I mean, they meant things for the group in the country, and they weren't used to sort of 
try to you know play some one country's national anthem back to back with another country's national anthem so much. So yeah, the way we have every country you know can't really be a country unless it has a flag and an anthem. That's more of a 20th century thing. And so the late 19th century, the first Olympic Games were starting to get there, but you know it's it's the symbol has changed in importance because of you know t- technology really. Well, thank you, Mark, and thank you so much for taking the the time to talk to me about the national anthem. Although I know he he could have talked to me for a couple hours, which would have been great because I could have kept going. <laughs> to be quite honest, I had so many more questions. I know, and when I was listening, <laughs> listening to it, I said, "Oh, but wait, what about that?" <laughs> so we'll have to, you know, we might actually have a show in this because the I was looking into some of the historical inaccuracy in the movie and discovered that the tradition of playing the national anthems for the gold medalist, which also the medalists weren't gold. They right. actually got right. as silver. Pat told, so as all Pat that told talk, us, gold was not. Right, so all that talk of gold medals in the movie oh, is wrong. Oh, which drove but me crazy. Live, but you see, I could live with that because people... Yeah, they wouldn't to know. To explain the difference yes. was unnecessary. Okay, so the tradition of national anthem, anthems didn't come into practice until 1924. Oh my gosh. Wow. So it was a long time. And they have a limit of 30 seconds. So the anthems that we hear are not necessarily the whole thing. Huh. But it sort of goes to show you the point of the movie was not historical fact. The point of the movie was something that we can get behind. It was the Olympics have an amazing, amazing history. And for as long as the modern Olympics have existed, athletes have dreamed of going to the Olympics and achieving something that they never thought was possible. Right. And it's bigger than themselves. It's bigger than their country. And it's just kind of amazing when you think about like all of the unknowns that these people were stepping into. They had no idea this this was going to continue to to like build and build, even though they had dates set for the next one, but they didn't know what this was going to become. And it's it's kind of a testament to like the gumption, I'd say, or the you know the let's let's make this happen, let's let's do a show, kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> and there were so many times where the Olympics could have died. You know, right. World War One, World mm-hmm. War Two, different times in the Cold War, the different boycotts, and the, when you go back expense, to the yeah. right mm-hmm. and and all the scandals, and there's been so many times where what this this incredible group of men, unfortunately, men, did in the 1890s has managed to survive because it says something bigger and right. does something bigger right. than just a bunch of people running around a track yeah and that's why we love it and that's why we love it we can geek out some more find (laughs) more of our history people we know you're great and you guys can geek out with you yes if you know of a local like who knew that colby college in maine would have this amazing collection yes and i'm sure there are collections like this all over the country that we have no idea about so we're going to find them for you right and if you have a if you have a tip for us, drop us a line, info at olimfever.com. And if you have something you want to geek out about, something historical, we'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at us. You can write on our Facebook page. They're both Olim Fever in their respective sites. 
And yeah, we'll, we'll, we will get our history geek on from time to time. So we are super excited about that. On that note, we will call this an episode. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you here again next week. Stay in touch. Email us at olymfever at gmail.com. That's O-L-Y-M fever at gmail. You can also leave us a voicemail at 530-763-3837. That's 530-70-FEVER. We're on Twitter at Olympfever, and you can join in the conversation at our Facebook group, Olympic Fever Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. I thought that was bogus. <laughs>